0: Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field in the cave... In it, were brought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days from that Was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, I have found favor in your eyes. Speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the, flesh, the threshing floor of Attad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw this mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. This is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizram. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abram had brought along with the field as a burial place from from Ephron the Hittite. And after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I am in the, in the place of, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and he and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family he lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children also the children of Machir son of Manasseh were placed at birth on Joseph's knees then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and to take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Fred.
1: Hopefully, some of you have an idea what I'm talking about if I mention the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the doctrinal standards of the branch, in other words, it is, a, it is a summary of the gospel, of what we together believe. and in many churches in Europe, this Heidelberg Catechism was used both as a um, a basis for preaching on all kinds of topics related to the truth of the gospel, but it was also used for children. And at a young age, they were already supposed to learn the questions and answers of this catechism by heart. I was one of those kids, and it's still sitting here. Anyway, this regular use of a catechism, and the word means instruction book, was meant to give the membership, the whole membership of a church, a good grasp of the content of our faith. Now, one of the things that came regularly back in this catechism was the question, what is the promise of the gospel? And you can still wake me up in the middle of the night, and I'll give you the answer. The promise of the gospel is, one, forgiveness of sins, and two, eternal life. Now, I can tell you, as a child, you have no idea how big this statement is. The promise of the gospel is forgiveness of sins and eternal life now you may wonder what in the world has all this to do with Genesis 50 two people ending up in a coffin getting more support here can I keep going (laughs) I hope you heard the first part (laughs) and you are wondering what all this has to do with Genesis 50. Now, Genesis 50 is about two people ending up in a coffin, Father Jacob and his famous son Joseph. So we read about two two funerals of people who had played their role in Israel's history. Now, this morning, I hope to show you that the two core elements of our faith, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, are at the heart of our story for today. And our theme is banking on God's promises. Now what an amazing contrast we find if we compare the beginning and the finish of this first book of the Bible. Genesis opens with the story of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And he is acting there completely on his own. And the result is beauty and perfection. It all speaks of God's eternal glory. But pretty soon after man makes his appearance on the earth, the reality of human sin ruins it all. Adam's first son, Cain, murders his brother Abel. And A chapter later, Lamech, brags about his lust for blood revenge. And then Genesis chapter 6 tells us that God saw how great man's wickedness had become. And his sad conclusion is, every man's heart is bent on evil all the time. In his pain because of human sin, God decided to come with the judgment of an enormous flood that would wipe out all human life, apart from Noah and his family. And then, after many generations, God calls Abram to become the forefather of the people of Israel, his elected people, that one day would bring forth the Messiah, God's Son, who would bless the world once again and restore the creation to its original glory. Now, over the last months, we have looked into the family history of Abram and his sons. A tragic story, full of the ugliness of human sin. Full of the ugliness of death all the time. Also in our chapter. And yet also with glimpses of God's grace. And sometimes God's presence was very obvious. Other times he seemed to have vanished completely. But one thing stands out throughout this book. Whatever happens, God is in control. He knows exactly what he is doing. And finally, gets his people where he wants them to be. So let's have a look at our passage for today. It begins with the death of Father Jacob when he was 110 years old, he had moved his whole family to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan. And he lived there for another 17 years under the care of Joseph, the second man in Egypt. And when he knows that his end is near, he blesses all his sons and gives them instructions for his funeral. And then we read, He drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Now this sentence has always fascinated me. As if he was completely in control. He blessed his sons, he praised the Lord a final time, pulled up his legs and died. That's what you call a, a life brought to completion. And yet the sadness of his death... Seems to be enormous. First, 70 days of mourning in Egypt. And then, while lamenting loudly and bitterly, they brought him over to Canaan and there they observed another seven days of mourning and spilled buckets of tears. Makes you wonder, I mean, he was 137 years old. He was ready to die and his death was to be expected. Well, it shows at least how much Joseph. And his father loved each other. His death leaves an enormous gap, and the loss is unmeasurable. But perhaps for the brothers, fear for the future begins to play a role. They had always felt that their father Jacob was their safeguard, that their brother Joseph would not turn against them. But what will happen when father Jacob is not around anymore? Is it payback time for Joseph now? So they decide to take action as soon as they are in Egypt. They sent a messenger to Joseph with a made-up story. Joseph, Father Joseph has instructed us to tell you that you are to forgive your brothers what they have done to you in the past. An obvious lie because Jacob would have told Joseph that was his intention and wouldn't have worked through the the brothers. But apparently, they hope they can still hide their father Jacob and Joseph's respect for his father to save their skin. But when Joseph receives this message, he is totally upset. He wept. And these are very different tears from the tears of mourning he shed before. These are tears of utter frustration and disappointment. Do his brothers understand so little of him? He had been absolutely genuine in in expressing his love for them all. For all those years in Egypt, for the whole family, 17 years already, Joseph had been generous to all of them. He loved to be with his family And he thought they loved him as well. But now it appears they never trusted him. They had never believed that Joseph had really forgiven them. And now that Father Jacob is no longer around, they fear his revenge. That says something about their own heart, doesn't it? They cannot understand forgiveness because they are not able to do it themselves. They would pay back if they were in Joseph's position, so they expect him to do the same. And they make it even worse when they offer themselves as slaves to Joseph. We'll pay you. If you do not take revenge on us and our families, it's rather tragic, especially for Joseph refusing genuine forgiveness that's been offered to you. Congregation, do we realize that we can do the same to God? Refuse to accept his forgiveness, simply not believing his promise. I remember a brother who was a part of my congregation in Cape Town, a man of about 45 years old at the time. He was a nice enough guy, but not a a joyous person. He carried a big burden, the burden of guilt. And the story was this. When he was 20 years old, he served in the Dutch Navy. And when their ship docked somewhere in the Caribbean, he went a night out with his mates, And had his first sexual experience with a harbor prostitute. And when the ship was on the way home, he discovered he had picked up a venereal disease. The whole adventure made him deeply miserable and guilty because he wasn't brought up that way. So he was desperate to solve his problem of guilt. So in order to get right with God, he promised that he would never marry and never have sex again. Live a celibate life as a form of penitence. But 10 years later, I was about 30, a woman in Cape Town convinced him to marry her. So here was a second load of guilt on him. He had first lost his chastity, but now also broken his penitence promise to God. And now every time, when, when there were problems in his life, for instance, one of the kids he had became seriously ill, then he felt God was punishing him for his sin of the past. It haunted him. And all this made him deeply concerned and depressed. One day, the whole story about his guilt feelings came out. And I asked him, but Jack, did you never seek forgiveness of your misstep, misstep of 25 years ago? He said, me not asking forgiveness? I have asked forgiveness for it every day since. Now think of that. What was his problem? It was not that he hadn't asked for forgiveness. It was rather that he never really believed that God would actually be able to forgive such an ugly mistake. And therefore, it was forever on his conscience. We can do that, friends. You can pray for forgiveness of things that are, your con- are on your conscience and never believe that God will wipe them out indeed. As I just said the brothers made matters worse by offering joseph to become his slave to become his slaves so they wanted to pay for the forgiveness that will save their lives we are inclined to do the same with god aren't we negotiate with him offer god something in return for forgiveness for instance vowing that it will never happen again But then when it does happen, and it might well happen, we'll feel the worst for it. And then spiritual depression up to a point of despair can set in. We'll never make it the way we should be. Well, friends, then it is time to return to faith, to this first big promise of the gospel. You've got to believe that God can forgive sins without you, paying for it. See, that is the gospel, the good news. God is able to forgive sins because someone else has paid for it. Jesus has on Calvary's cross. And that is where you should look when you need forgiveness for your sins. And we all need that. Look in faith to the cross and tell God, I believe Jesus has paid for me. I believe my sins are forgiven. I believe I am free from guilt. Now grant me the power of your Holy Spirit to leave that sin behind me. That's the way to make progress in the Christian life. Now back to the story. Joseph said to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Of course not. You see... Don't you understand? I am living of forgiveness myself. Who am I to punish you? See, knowing that God has forgiven you makes you able to forgive others from the heart as well. That is Joseph. And then he comes up with a beautiful statement. You, my brothers, intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. Now we'll never know how that exactly works. Here are two opposite intentions. Men intend to do evil. But then God turns around and something good comes from it. For he always has good intentions. Joseph has seen it himself. The intentions of his brothers were really bad. But see what has come of it. Many lives are being saved. Jacob's family hasn't starved for lack of food. They are alive and well and growing. So don't be afraid, said Joseph. I'll keep looking after you. Now, I suppose Joseph thinks mainly of the lives of his family being saved. But there is something more to it the blessing of Abram. that we read about in Genesis chapter 12, would come through his offspring, through Abram's offspring, and subsequently go out into the whole world. That blessing has been saved as well by the actions of Joseph and Egypt. So this, this is not just a great story about the survival of a family some three and a half thousand years ago. No, God intended to save his promise to Abraham. And therefore, we as Christians of the 21st century are directly involved here. For in the promise to Abraham, the promise of the coming Messiah is included. And Jesus' forefathers were kept alive here. See, God's intentions for good are always much bigger than we can imagine. Now, we can say for Joseph, this was the wisdom of hindsight. He could see that it ultimately all worked out for the good. But it's one thing to say that in hindsight. Now I understand that God had good intentions when when he let me go through such a miserable time. But faith comes in where we say, I'm going through a horrible time right now. I have no clue why God is doing this to me, allowing this to happen. But I trust his good intentions. He'll get me where he wants me to be. That is banking on God's promises. In the last verse of this book... We read it also, last verses we read, that also Joseph's life comes to an end. At the age of 110, he realizes that his time of passing has come. And he too makes his funeral arrangements, but somewhat different from his father Jacob's. Jacob's desire to be buried with his forefathers in Canaan was a message to his family. I do not belong here in Egypt. I've been a pilgrim all my life, but let me find a resting place in the little piece of land that belongs to my family. It's the little foothold that Abraham acquired in Canaan, the block of land with the cave of Machpelah. It's the first down payment of God that one day Abraham's offspring will inherit the whole country. Jacob saying, bring me there as soon as possible. But but Joseph's wish is different. Joseph is aware of God's warning to Abraham that his offspring will be enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years. Well, that's a long time. Many generations will come and go. They'll really settle in Egypt and make it their homeland, and most of them will forget about God's promises. And that's why Joseph makes a different burial plan than his father. His body should stay in Egypt, embalmed in a coffin. And this coffin will keep speaking. It will remind the people of Israel in tough times to come. God will surely come to your aid and bring you to the promised land. Make sure that you take my bones along when you leave Egypt to go to Canaan. That was another act of faith of Joseph. And he is commended for it in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. And Israel remembered it. God will surely... Come to your aid. And when God had come to their aid, after 350 years, we read in Exodus 13, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. And to finish this part off, in the final chapter, the book of Joshua, we find that the bones of, Joshua, of Joseph are buried in Shechem. And that's the place that was allotted to Joseph's descendants. Then he has finally arrived in his own inheritance. God will surely come to your aid. That was the ongoing testimony of Joseph's coffin. And it kept speaking in tough times when the prospect of ever leaving Egypt had become very dim. There was no way that Israel could liberate themselves from the powerful Egyptians. But the message is, wait for the Lord. He will surely come to your aid. That is God's promise. And faith is banking on God's promise. We, we don't have an, a coffin with bones to encourage us to keep waiting for the Lord until he fulfills his promises. What we have is an empty tomb where the dead bones of Jesus, our Savior, were restored to life. But the message of that is very similar to the message of Joseph's coffin. God will surely come to your aid. Wait for the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is our first down payment of what God is going to do for us. Because he was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. And our promised land is not a small allotment in the land of Canaan. Our promised land is the new earth. But we will live forever. It's still very hard to imagine how that will be. All we have is God's promise that he will make sure that it does happen. May I remind you of the question that we posed in the beginning of the sermon. What is the promise of the gospel? You got it? Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Forgiveness of sins is first. And make sure that you receive it, that you accept it for what it is, a free gift of God's grace. And you can do nothing to deserve it. And you can do nothing to preserve it. After you have received this wonderful gift of forgiveness, and your conscience is cleansed from all sense of guilt, you can look forward to a relationship with God which will be just as eternal as God himself. God has not promised us a great life on earth. You may have it, or you may not. But don't forget, our destiny is not here. Our destiny is elsewhere. And Jesus' resurrection Is our testimony. God will surely come to your aid. He will liberate you from the misery of a sin-spoiled life on earth and welcome you in the heavenly Canaan. That is his promise. Bank on it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that comes from an old story that happened three and a half thousand years ago. And Lord, we bring glory to your name because we can see your hand at work. We can see that in spite of all the evil in man's heart. You turn around bad intentions for good. And it may take a long time. We've seen that too. But Lord, we want to count on your promises. Help us, if we haven't, to accept your promise of full forgiveness of all our sins, that you will throw them in the sea and remove them from us as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, we pray that, that in that process we may experience that you grant us eternal life in our relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, be with all of us as we consider these things, as we wrestle with these things And Lord, help us to understand. And therefore we pray, grant on all of us the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may receive what you have to offer and that we may rejoice now and forever. Amen.